This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here's your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to Episode 11 of Aviation Careers Podcast. We all hear about the opportunities for flying in China, but what is it really like to fly and work in China? To help you better understand the opportunities and the unique culture of the Chinese people, I have with me today Dave Ross. Dave is the president and CEO of Wazink and is responsible for all recruiting and business development for customers in China. He's lived and worked in Japan and speaks fluent Japanese. His diverse experiences with contractors, clients, and customers alike have given him some unique insight into the Chinese business environment and culture help us understand what it's like to work for a Chinese airline, specifically as a pilot, and experience the rich Chinese culture, please welcome Dave Ross. Hi, Dave. How you doing? Good, Carl. How are you? Good, good. So, Dave, you know, we, we've spoken in the past, and um, one of the things that people keep asking me is, what are these opportunities in China? Are there really opportunities in China? Yes. Actually, there's almost an unlimited need in China for you know, virtually every type of aircraft from, you know, from the CRJ, Embraer 145, you know, up to the A330, 777, uh, and it's really un- unlimited. And now these opportunities that are there, they're, these are basically on contracts, right? Yeah, that's right. And it's usually, um, most of them are a three, two or three year contract. Uh, but the way that the the limitations are in China right now, as far as their ability to you know, create their own captains. Uh, we we really feel like uh, they will probably use foreign captains for the next fifteen to twenty years, and you know, eventually, with one point five billion people, you can you can finally get your own pipeline developed. You know, but for right now, even though the contracts are two or three years, I mean, they are more than thrilled to have someone stay there as long as they want to. So there's really no time limit on it as far as that goes. Well. You just said that their ability to make captains, and just to make us understand, is that because they're growing so much they they don't have enough captains? Right. There's a couple things. Uh, one is their system; uh, they don't have a great pipeline in place. You know, like in the U.S., for example, I believe uh, commercial airlines here get about 35 percent of their pilots from the military. Uh, in China, it's very difficult to move from the military into commercial flying, so they really don't have that. Um, you know, there are a few commercial, uh, flight schools, but, um, you know, most of the airspace is still military controlled. So, you know, people that, that go through cadets that go through training, they're really, it's a very slow, uh, process. Uh, so, you know, they don't have a great uh, pipeline. Uh, also they're just their upgrade process when they take their FOs and, and, you know, try to move them through to be captains. It, it's a long process because of the, you know the learning style in in the West is a little bit different than than you know in, in the Orient, uh, where you know we learn by doing things, and so we, you know, we tell them, hey, or you know, you might say, here, let me show you how to do this once, and then you try it, and you know, in China, it's let let me show you this ten thousand times, and then you can try it once, you know, and so their their progress is very slow when they upgrade their FOS, yeah, so that's one of the reasons, you know, but it's just. They have more airplanes coming than they can make captains right now. Wow. Okay. So there's definitely a need there, which actually means that we're, that's probably going to draw on the, the U.S. population to go over flying overseas. And that's why we're talking here today. Right. And now, as far as the 
type of work you do. You do you set up contract flying and also placement. Uh, as what uh, first of all is that correct? That's exactly what you do. You do placement and contract flying. That's right. Yeah. So for the most part, the the airlines there uh, want us to do most of the you know advertising and, and pre screening people, but also supporting them during the life of the contract. You know, so uh, that's what we do. So we get people ready for interviews. Get you over there. Uh, make sure you're not just dropped off in the middle of nowhere. You know, we support your transition to life in China, so to speak. Right. Now, what exactly, you know, we hear this a lot. What exactly is contract flying? It, could you maybe explain it to the folks that are listening? Sure. And and I know it's a, a big departure from the the way most people here, you know, might have, have grown up or, or, you know, developed in their own flying careers. Um, but it's it's definitely a different environment, you know, where – for the most part, you know, we, we try to create win-win scenarios where, you know, we have an airline who's desperate for captains. We have a, a pilot who's interested in going out and, and you know, kind of, uh, you know, looking at different opportunities around the world. And then we have us, you know, it's kind of a three-way um, support system. And it's, a, it's really a win-win scenario for all three parties. It's definitely not you know, an Alpa versus the company, you know, situation where, you know, everything that happens is a struggle and a fight. You know, they're happy to have you there and, and eager for you to, to help them, you know, with their manning situations. And, and we try to support that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a much more cooperative environment that you, than, than you find here generally. Oh, I understand. Now, the, as far as the pilots now, what would they look for in, in say, a contract? What should, should they look for when they're signing a contract? Well, I think the important thing is is to, you know, there there are all kinds of of opportunities, you know. So if you're an A320 captain, there might be, you know, eight or ten different companies there. And I and I think that the important thing is not always the money, but to look at, you know, kind of their their track record. You know, how do they how do they treat uh, the foreign captains? You know, um, how do, are they paying your taxes like they say they will? You know, um, just other things, you know, things that you've heard from people that have flown there. Um, and, you know, those kinds of things are very important because some of those airlines have, you know, great reputation and some don't. And, and it's, it's always better, I think, to be in a location that you like and in a, in a you know, kind of fly, uh, work environment that will make you happy rather than, hey, I got the, the most money that I could possibly get, you know, and, and that, but I'm unhappy with the location and, and everything else. Right, and that's that's in most jobs. I think people can look at that and say, you know, really, is it just the money or is it my lifestyle? Lifestyle is very important. Sure, absolutely. The uh, contract flying, though, just um, as far as the con, I've heard this term used before, and maybe you could help explain it. Some people talk about what's called commuter contracts. What what does that mean? Well, there's two types of of contracts. Um, when and most of the airlines will offer both. You can either live in China. And, um, you know, generally the pay is higher. You have more opportunities to work for, over, you know, work overtime and things like that. Um, but they'll also offer a commuter option where you can work, you know, six weeks on and two weeks off, you know, to where you could go home for two weeks at a time, uh, six weeks on, three weeks off, those types of arrangements. Uh, you know, so depending on your family, family situation, you know, we actually have some guys who, you know, take their families and move to China. You know, some people can't do that. And so, you know, the airlines try to offer a variety of options. So depending on your family situation, you know, you might, you might move there, you might want to, you might want to commute, but it, it does give you a very, you know, uh, pretty varied 
a number of options. Is it difficult to commute from China to, say, the U.S.? Well, you know, like I said, it's a it's a personal decision and usually has to do with your family. But to me, I usually try to recommend people not to do it just because, you know, if you have two weeks off, um, for, for myself, when I come home from China, it takes me about three days to recuperate and, you know, not wake up at 2 a.m. every night. Uh, you know, so over a two-week period, you really only have about 10, 10 days, quality days at home. You know, China is actually a, an easy place to live. You know, we have a lot of guys there with, with families and spouses. Uh, they have international schools and, and um, you know, they get along quite well. It's, it's a, you can live a, like a king, you know, on the salary that you make there. And, but some people have to commute and there is that option available. Could you give us maybe an example of something in China, like an opportunity in China that is maybe typical uh, of what someone would see? Yeah. Um, we have, you know, if, if you look at, again, kind of the what's the best opportunity out there, um, I, I would say one of the ones, the, the most stable ones we work with is Shenzhen Airlines, which is the, they operate A320s and 737s. Um, they're located in the southern part of China, which is just, just across the bay from Hong Kong. Uh, so the location's really nice. You know, you can get to either Hong Kong or Macau uh, by ferry boat in about 30 minutes. They have the largest group of foreign pilots in China, about 125 there right now. And, um, you know, they're a good, a, a good operation. You know, typically they fly like four days on and two days off um, for the guys that are, are living in China. And they provide uh, 30 days of paid leave per year. Um, but with everything together, you know, they're, they're paying right around, uh, I think it's around 17000 a month right now, and uh, they pay your taxes for you. So, you know, with, with the cost of living and things the way it is in China, it's really an opportunity to save an, an amazing amount of money. Wow, that sure is. That's, that's terrific. And that's just, you know, right off the bat you're making that. That's terrific. Right, yeah. Um, how about opportunities for first officers? We're not just talking captains now. Well, yeah, the, the problem in China is that most of the carriers do not provide training, you know, so they really don't have a way to, to transition someone from the right seat to the left seat. Um, you know, so since they don't do a lot of training, then, then the government says, hey, if, then you can only hire current and qualified captains. Um, so it really makes the opportunities for FOs uh, limited. Um, in fact, right now we only have one company, it's a corporate jet operation that operates a variety of, you know, corporate aircraft. They are hiring a few FOs, but most of the larger airlines aren't doing it, you know, mainly because of the training issue. But there's also a, a regulation where uh, if there's a foreigner on board the aircraft, someone in the cockpit has to be able to speak Chinese. And so if you have a, if you have a foreigner in the right seat, then they have to fly with Chinese captains. And most of the Chinese captains don't speak English. Um, you know, that this ICAO level four English requirement that was that was implemented a few years ago, you know, all of the Chinese captains were grandfathered in and, and almost none of them speak English. So, you know, it creates a language barrier. But they'd like they'd actually like to hire first officers, but just haven't quite quite got there. Now, on the captain side, I I know a few people that I fly with and they uh, they know. Let's see, Mandarin and Cantonese, is that right? And uh, those are, what is the most popular language over there? Well, in, 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 mainland, in mainland China, the, the official language is Mandarin. Okay. Uh, Cantonese is spoken mainly in Hong Kong. Oh, I see. I see. So yeah. that, that's why, because I know a lot of people from Hong Kong, and that's why they have both of those. Yeah. So yeah. would that be a benefit 
Oh, is it? Um, yeah, it's all, it's always. I mean, I'll be honest with you. You know, any culture you go, you move into, and you try to learn. A, I mean, like you said, I, I lived in Japan for a little while. I know that you just, just learning a few words of the language it just impresses them so much. You know, they just love people that are willing to get in, embrace their language and their culture. And you know, you can say a few words of Chinese, and they just oh, they just start grinning and lo- they just love it. You know, it's it's it just shows that you're. You know, you're there to kind of to fit in and and not necessarily impose your will on them. You know. Yeah, that's and that's good in any culture you go to, like Italy. You go to you know Mexico, and uh, just sometimes you mix up words. Though I found that huh. I've done that a few times. <laughs> they usually <laughs> yeah, laugh though. <laughs> sometimes that can be embarrassing. Yes, but, very embarrassing. Yeah, we were just just we were in uh, in China recently, and we took a Shenzhen Airlines flight from Shenzhen to Beijing. And it was a Brazilian captain that was that was uh, flying the, on the air, air on the flight, and he actually did the initial announcement in Chinese. Oh, huh. And um, we were looking around, you know, we actually knew the guy, but we were looking around, and and it, the, you could see all the passengers just just intently listening to it, you know. And when he got done with the announcement, they clapped, and you know, <laughs> it was yeah. I mean, it's a, it's funny how impressed they are that you know a few words of Chinese. Yeah, that is great. Uh, that's neat. Um, you know, getting on to uh, pass the language, we obviously sure. don't have that as an issue. Uh, how about actually working there? It, what would be the difference in the work environment for the actual pilot compare, comparing it to the U.S. airlines? Um, you know, I think it's very similar when you get into the operation. You know, getting through the screening process and getting hired is actually pretty chaotic. Uh, and time consuming but you, when you actually get into the operation i think that most people find that it's very similar you know the the caac is closely patterned after the faa uh, so a lot of the rules and regulations the even you know the various uh, designations for like part part 121 or part 91 all those numbers are the same in china um, so you know as far as that goes a lot of it's very similar um, there are some things to to that are different, you know, as far as they use meters instead of feet. Um, you know, some of the aircraft or some of the airports are still military controlled. You know, so there are, there are a few things they get used to, but, but generally just operationally, I think it's, it's very similar. Like I said, you kind of work a four days on and two days off rotation at most of the airlines. And so there are some people who, especially if you're a, you know, a senior captain at American Airlines, for example, you probably have a little more time off here in the US than you do in China but you know you make really good money it's it's tax free and and uh, at the end of the day you know that really that's what you're over there for is to make some money so yeah i think operationally it's very similar so in general before we actually talk about making the transition to going to China qualifications what would the average be should people have say a thousand hours pilot in command or what what would you suggest most of them are the same. I would say almost every airline is very similar. They want 500 hours of PIC time on type, and they want your last flight to be within the past 12 to 15 months, um, and total time of between 3,000 and 4,000 hours. So it's actually not very restrictive. I mean, it you know, only 3,000 hours, and you know, you can go over there and make 17,000 a month is is pretty amazing. But you know. It it that 500 hours of PIC time is is the magic um, key. You know, if you have that, you're golden. If you don't, they just won't look at you. Um, it's actually one one of the things right now that we're working on is um, we have some Air China executives that'll be in Dallas next week, and we're gonna have uh, arrange for a 
some sim sessions with some of the senior FOs that will come in and do some, you know, some uh, sim evaluations to kind of show them, you know, first officers in the States generally are very experienced, you know, so we're, tr- we're trying to push some rapid upgrade programs, you know, where you could take senior FOs and, you know, do some type of a, a quick upgrade and, and move them into the left seat. Uh, but when we, t- when we talk to them about it, you know, they think of Chinese FOs, which don't, who don't do anything, and they just can't imagine it. So we're going to try and arrange this to where we can show them that, hey, in the States, you know, these guys, some of them have 20,000 hours, and they're trapped in the right seat and just can't move over, you know. 20,000 hours, and that, that's not far-fetched, you know. I've seen that. It's really happen. not. Yeah, yeah. That, that, and especially in the environment right now. Yeah. Um, we have quite a few folks, uh, and, and you look at the regionals, just say, and you have a lot of folks at 5,000 hours still sitting in the right seat. Right. And they may have 5,000 hours on that airplane even. It's, it's amazing. It's crazy. Now, as far as making this transition to actual living in China, let's talk a little more personnel issues here. Sure. The, and the culture and making, and moving there. What, what would you suggest to somebody? What should they do to maybe prepare themselves and to understand what they're going to go through when they actually make that transition? Well, there's a couple of things. One thing I would recommend, you know, to get a book about the culture of China and, and read up on it, you know, because it's very different. You know, the way they think, the, the things that they've been through as a company, as a country, as, as far as, you know, their, the different transitions that they've been through over the last 40 or 50 years. Um, so it's important to know kind of what their history is, how they think. Uh, I think one of the big mistakes that, that people make when they go over there is they try to impose their own, uh, you know, idea of, you know, what's common sense on the Chinese people. And, you know, obviously it's different wherever you go, you know. And so I always tell people, look, if you can look at somebody who's driving on the left side of the street and say, hey, that's a different side of the street than I drive on, rather than saying, hey, that's the wrong side of the street, you know, then then you're going to be okay. You know, as long as you can, you know, see the good things that, that are in their culture and and adapt to that and, and try to make it a positive, you're going to be, you're going to do fine. Um, the, the problems that we see is, is, you know, guys who, and, and I'll be honest, Americans in general have this problem where no, no matter where they go in the world is, you know, you expect everyone to speak English, you expect everybody to think the way you do. And, you know, I mean, China's China and maybe more so than anywhere I've been in the world, fewer people speak English, you know, so you have to adapt to that. You know, we usually recommend to people, hey, just, you know, kind of let go of what you're used to and, and embrace, you know, the way people are there and, and you'll love it. I wonder if they have transition programs or like those immersion classes for speaking Chinese. Yeah, they, they do. Some of the some of the universities have, have classes. I know we have a lot of our pilots that actually will hire somebody to come to their house and do, you know, private Chinese lessons. Um, and it's ridiculously inexpensive. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of ways to, to do that. Um, as far as, you know, speaking the language, we also have local people that we hire in each of the cities that are available to help you with, you know, living in China issues. So if you, if you get stuck in a taxi somewhere and can't communicate, you can, you can call our office and, and they'll help you translate. Or, you know, if you need help find an apartment, we do that. Or, you know, how do I order bottled water? You know, things like that. We want to make sure that you know, those guys that move over there are not just dumped off, that, that we really help them transition and feel comfortable about it. That's interesting. It's like a lifeline. Say, yeah, hey, yeah. <laughs> well, even a lot, of, a lot of them have families there, you know, so we try to put them in touch with 
some of the families that are already living in China and, and be able to ask those questions before they get there. And I don't know, for, for us, the whole thing really is to make sure that we're given a lot of information before guys make this decision. So, you know, you make the right decision for you and your family and, and not get over there and go, I hate this, you know. And so it does take some study and research and, you know, making sure you're doing the right thing before you go. You know, if someone's looking at this and they're wondering, is this for me, do you have any advice on what type of person will be most suitable for moving there? Yeah, I, I usually I usually say, look, you've got to be someone who's flexible. You know, like I said earlier, things are different. People think differently. They do things differently. Um, so if you're somebody who can look at the big picture and say, man, I'm getting paid a lot of money. I'm not really working that hard. But there are a few things that are you know, kind of minor irritations that come up now and again. If you can over, kind of overlook the small things and keep your eye on the big picture, you're going to be great. Um, but the other big thing is, you know, that China is a very group-oriented culture. And so they value, you know, people who consider the needs of the group, you know, so the pilot group or the company. So if you have suggestions about, hey, th- this would help the, our whole group or this will really help the company out, you know, they love that. They just eat it up. And, and the guys who are interested in those types of things just fit in really, really well. If you're someone who's always griping about your own schedule and me, 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 and I do this and I want that, they just, as a culture, they don't like that. And, and Chinese people don't do that. So, you know, it, it, it makes it difficult if you're very concerned about tiny things. It, it will make it difficult for you. Well, you know, and just listening to you, I'm really intrigued to learn more about the culture. You, you wouldn't happen to know any books. Would you recommend any? Um, you know, recently I, I read a great book uh, called Life and Death in Shanghai. And it, it's about the communist takeover of China and, and this, the things that happened to this lady that lived there. And it's a very interesting look at, you know, kind of how the China evolved through that period. And I could actually, after I read it, I kind of thought, man, I, I can really you know, kind of understand how, how, why they do certain things, you know? Um, so yeah, it was a, it, that was a very interesting book for me. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll try to get some links to that in the show notes. Did you find that on like Amazon or something like that? Um, yeah, I think I got it through off my Kindle. So I, I'm sure it's available on Amazon. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, we'll have links to that in the show notes for those that want to actually link to that and take a look at that. Um, getting back to living there, you know, what, as far as what would you think are the be- the greatest benefits to actually being in China, living in China for someone? Well, I think, you know, there's a couple of things. One is the the tax benefits are amazing. You know, so we have guys that have been there for five or six years and haven't paid tax in the U.S. at all. Uh, you know, so the airline pays your, your taxes in China and then you can use the certificate they give you to offset any taxes you might have here. Um, so, you know, the the when you see these amounts, 17000 18000 a month, that's really net pay, you know, that the, in, in your pocket. Um, and then that coupled with, you know, most guys I think that have a, you know, like a three bedroom apartment that's, a, you know, around 1400 square feet or so uh, are, are probably paying with their rent, utilities, food, transportation, everything are probably paying around $2,000 a month. Uh, just their out of pocket expenses. So, you know, you really have a chance to save, you know, $15,000 a month, uh, which you maybe have been able to do that in the States at one time, but it sure isn't happening now. 
<laughs> and there, and as far as buying food, is it similar to here, or is it cheaper? You think? Yeah, I, there's a Walmart uh, in, in virtually every city I've been to. You know, and the the only difference, I mean, very similar. The only difference is you can buy alligator meat, and you can <laughs> buy live frogs, and and things like that, chickens and things. But um, yeah, I mean, as I went into some of these stores, I mean, a lot of the products have the same name. You know, the soaps they have. Um, Ajax and, you know, different kind of American brands. You know, we usually tell people, you know, if you got a favorite toothpaste or deodorant that you like, take a bunch with you, you know, because you can't get some of those things there. Or, but, yeah, generally, if you buy food and things, it's very, very easy to get along. And how about somebody coming back for, say, an emer- a family emergency? Is that difficult for them to do? Uh, no, not, not really. They, you know, you, it's just like here. You know, they have emergency leave that you can take. So it's, yeah, not, it's not difficult at all. You know, you talked about the challenges of driving and looking at things differently. Kind of reminded me of I used to commute back and forth to another country where they drove on the left side of the road. And uh-huh. I would go there and I'd have to sit and think for a second after I started the car, okay, Carl, what are we going to do? You're going to stay on the left side and when you make a right turn, <laughs> make sure you're on the left side of the road. <laughs> yeah, when you go through an intersection, you've got to oh, keep it in mind. <laughs> that is so scary to me. And making making that making that left turn too is tough. That any turns, going straight's okay. It's the turns that get me. Exactly. Is that, what is that that's one challenge I assume that you would have in China. Do they drive on the left side or the right side? They actually drive on the right side oh, of the road. Okay. So that would be yeah. a challenge. But what what other challenges might might we have, like say going back and forth? Well, you know, we talked about the the language issue and, and that was, you know, for me is a is a big a big thing. When I got there I bought you know, actually now they have a lot of iPhone apps where you can do, you know, immediate translation and things like that. I bought a little calculator where you can type in phrases and it'll actually say the phrase in Chinese. Um, you know, so those kinds of things. I know most of the guys also will start putting together a notebook, you know, so if you find a restaurant that you like, you you get one of their their business cards and put it in your notebook and make a note about what you liked about it. And next time you want to go there, you can just show it to the taxi driver, you know. Um, but I think beyond that, you know, other than, I mean, China is still a developing country, you know, so some of the, you know, the, the luxuries that we have here, you know, really aren't available in, in China. Most of the apartments don't have dryers. You know, they, they, most of them, you know, hang their clothes out after you wash, hang the clothes out on a line to dry. Um, you know, so a few little inconveniences like that, but you know, it's quite safe. You know, the, the, there's really no serious crime there. You know, you've, you'll find some pickpocketing and some people stealing bicycles or things like that, but you know, they're very serious about serious crime. And so you just don't see too much of it. It's, you know, I've been, I've walked all over a lot of these cities and never felt like I was in danger or anything like that. So I think the challenges are fairly small, more so than they would have been maybe 20 years ago. It's really changing and, you know, becoming more westernized or western friendly, you know. Well, it sounds really interesting. Sounds like it, it, it's a great opportunity for somebody who wants to try something different and and visit a new culture and, and actually make a lot of money, too. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, Dave, is there anything else you want to add before we go into our product recommendations? No, I, I guess I would just say, you know, uh, for the most part, it's it's a scary thing, you know. But if you do your study and and um, and look at everything, research and and you know, understand really clearly what what's involved, and like I said, go into it with an open mind. You know, the guys that are there quite like the lifestyle. You know, the 
the demand there is virtually unlimited as far as numbers, you know, so it'll be ongoing for quite a while. But, you know, it really, um, I think, can be a great cultural experience. Just, you know, if you have kids, to be able to, after a couple of years, be able to speak Chinese and, and things like that, it's, it's, uh, it's quite an, an experience and, a, and a, a, an adventure, if you will. But, but, yeah, very rewarding, I think. Yeah, that would be unique. Come back and be able to speak Chinese. That would be terrific. That would be really <laughs> cool. Well, Dave, uh, you said you'd stick around for this, uh, our sure. product recommendations, and, and also our reading recommendation. And actually, uh, one of them is uh, wazinc.aero. And as some of the people that listen to this podcast know, I've assisted in the past and still do pilots finding jobs while they're on furlough. And I've actually worked with Wazink in the past, uh, starting back when the, the whole 9-11 and the furloughs then. And the people over at Wazink are very, very knowledgeable, and uh, they're really willing to take the time, just like Dave has today, with each individual pilot and answer any of the questions uh, regarding working overseas. One of the things I really liked about Wazink is the fact that they didn't try to oversell our pilots on opportunities in China. They actually, just like you did, presented the facts and let each individual pilot decide if flying in China was actually appropriate for the pilot and also their family. And although the focus today is on flying in China, Wazink actually also offers opportunities for pilots in other countries with a concentration in Asia. So I recommend you're going and checking out wazink.aero and seeing for yourself if working for overseas is for you. Now, Dave, what other opportunities do you look towards other than just China? What else is out there? Uh, we also have uh, Skymark Airlines in Japan, which is uh, they're hiring non-rated uh, 737-800 captains um, with you know opportunities for upgrades to A330s and A380s. Uh, we also have a contract with e- Ethiopian Airlines on the 7-3 or the 7-6. Um, you know, but so far, we've really kind of concentrated on Asia just because we don't want to get any bigger than we can support the, the pilots that are on the ground. You know, so all the, you know, the Middle East and, and you know, even Vietnam and India and some of those places, we just haven't gotten involved because you know, we, we, want, we don't want to grow any faster than we can, than we, than we can support the pilots. That makes sense. That's great. And again, that's uh, Wazink, W-A-S-I-N-C dot A-E-R-O. And if they have any questions, do you mind if they if I forward them all to you? Yeah, sure. Okay. That's great. Great. Thank you. Uh, as far as uh, the recommended reading, um, one of the things we talk about is knowing the basics like in the Chinese language. But as a pilot, it's important to master the basics and have a good foundation of any aviation knowledge. And there's certain books that you must have in your aviation library. One of them is the Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge. I've received many questions in the past concerning operating rules, basic aerodynamics, and weather. One of the sources I quote most often when I'm answering listeners' questions is the Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge. You know, this document's free as a download from the FAA website, or you can purchase it in book format. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put some more information about how you can get to the the uh, Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge on aviationcareerspodcast.com, and you can click on it and actually read some excerpts and also look at the uh, table of contents. You know, I think you'll find most answers to aviation questions in the Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge, and I really think this should be in every pilot's library. Well, Dave, again, thanks so much for joining us here today, and I, I really appreciate your talking to the folks at uh, Aviation Careers Podcast. And what's the best way for them to contact you if they'd like to get in touch with you? 
Well, they can send an email to jobs at wazinc.net or they can uh, call us. Uh, our phone number in Las Vegas is 702-553-3044. Well, thanks, Dave. And thank you for listening, our listeners here, listening to aviationcareerspodcast.com. I hope the information about flying in China has been really helpful and will bring you one step closer to your decision about working in China. And if you want to reach me, it's easy to find me. I'm at aviationcareerspodcast.com. You can click on the contact page and just fill out the form or send us an email. We're also on Twitter at Flying Careers. And remember to like us on Facebook because on Facebook is where I put most of our, the job opportunities and those also post on Twitter. And that's uh, facebook.com slash aviationcareerspodcast. And just remember... Keep your eye on your aviation career goal. You never know where that path will take you, and it truly is varied. Well, folks, again, thanks for listening to Aviation Careers Podcast. Safe flying, and we'll talk to you next episode. You've been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although hosts or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler, All Rights Reserved.